Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 74, Pope John the Fourth. Are you ready? Um, I, I am. I have to. It's actually buried under two other D&D books. Nope, that's not the one. It's actually open on my desk. Huh, interesting. I told you to get it ready. <laughs> I mean, I sort of did, and then I, um, then I dumped dressing on it (laughs) i'm i'm a disaster brie i also have a a big urge to like swear the entire episode yeah oh hey listeners we after almost two years of recording have gotten our first one star review that said we swear too much and are disrespectful to every religious figure so um Someone is not having fun with us, and that's okay. That is okay. They're entitled to their opinion, but now I just want to swear the entire episode. Well, let's see if you think that John inspires the f- words in you, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. He might not. So I need you to roll two D20s. All right. The first one is a 17, and the second is a nat 20. What? His name is Pretty Mast. <laughs> what? Okay, that we've we've had some good ones, but that is definitely the most euphemistic. <laughs> John the Fourth, the Pretty Mast. We don't have to swear. We're just gonna be calling him a dick the whole time. Our Pretty Mast. Oh boy. And um, for those of you who are not on Patreon and haven't heard it yet, yes, I have a, a terrible, terrible cold thing that is affecting my voice. So if I sound like I'm about to laugh or getting emotional, that's just my baby coughs. I'm sorry. I have a lung condition. My lungs suck. So I have two different types of coughs. Either it's like the <laughs> where it's a baby. It sounds so fake. It sounds so fake. And the other ones are when the lungs want to come out of the body. So, no in-between. They should stay in. They should stay in. But they don't. So, let's jump into Mr. Pretty Mast. Should we roll it again? Nope. We're going with it. This is what we do. There's no do-overs in D&D. John was born in 587 in Yadera in Dalmatia which is modern-day Zud in Croatia. So this makes him our second Dalmatian Pope after Pope Caius, who was episode 30, the hot Pope. He was very hot. Yes, very hot. So his father, Venantius, which just repeatedly made me think of that Pokemon Venonat the whole time. So just picture a giant Venonat, if you will. He was a Scholasticus, which is a title we've heard before, because we've talked about Socrates Scholasticus and Evagrius Scholasticus, but we haven't really discussed other than to name new characters for our future children's television show. As one might expect, a Scholasticus was usually in charge of a religious school, but many of the sources also add that he was an advocate, in brackets, when talking about John's father. So his role as a scholasticus might have also indicated that he was a lawyer or an orator. 
not that this is particularly relevant, but it gives us an understanding that he would have been from a family well enough off to have their son grow up and enter the church and make it to Rome, where he was viewed as a, quote-unquote, very cultured man, so the Liber Pontificalis tells us. And in Rome, we know that John was elevated to the position of archdeacon in 636, and then cardinal deacon within the same year. This was the role that he continued to hold by the time that he was elected to be the next pope in December of 640. Now, why they waited to hold an election until December when Severinus died in August is unclear, but considering the incredible chaos they had undergone with the last pope, you know, holding off his election and having all these threats and potentially raiding the Lateran Basilica, maybe they were just being deliberately cautious. Now, interestingly, despite the wait to be elected, John was pretty much able to be consecrated with imperial confirmation very soon after his actual election in December, which historians have taken to mean that they must not have waited to send a legate all the way to the emperor in Constantinople, but instead probably obtained the confirmation from the exarch in Ravenna instead. We've seen this a little bit before, but it's becoming more common. And considering the apocrysaries who returned to Rome to convey Severinus's confirmation to the Pope probably would have also mentioned that the emperor at this time was sick and dying, maybe they just thought better of wasting their time and going to the Exarch was much closer and more assured. Yeah, you you don't want to go all the way there and then have someone just die on you before you get there. Yeah, I mean, they can't confirm you if they're dead. And who knows how imperial succession is going at this time? Hint, not well. At this point in history, it's never a very clear succession on their end. Not that it ever really was, you know? Anyways, that is a rabbit hole for my brain to go down later. After his consecration, John decided he wanted to add his name to the ever-growing list of popes that contributed to the solving of a long-standing problem. Do you want to guess what problem? Easter. Got it in one. Ah, uh, well, I mean today, the 26th of February, it's the beginning of Lent. Ash Wednesday, that is correct, because Mardi Gras was yesterday. Mm-hmm. So he decides he's going to contribute to the solving of Easter. And just like in the papacy of Honorius, it's back to Ireland. Somewhat. And Scotland. A little bit. To recap, Ireland had been using its own computation for the date of Easter, which was not lining up with the rest of the Orthodox Church. And then Honorius had made contact with Ireland to advise them to lean towards a universal calculation, and after a delegation to Rome and a synod, Southern Ireland had all adopted the new calculation to get in line with the rest of the Church. And also snakes. Also snakes. Always snakes. So now Pope John, pretty mast, is writing to the north of Ireland and Scotland because they continued to maintain that 84-year Laterkus calculation that was incorrect that the rest of Ireland had now abandoned and moved away from. He informs them of their error and pushes them to adopt the new 
more correct, metonic 19-year calculation that the rest of the church is now using. And then, while he was writing to them, he also said, you need to be on your guard against Pelagianism. Because, always, apparently, that is still a big threat. Now, we don't actually know if the Irish and Scottish clergy actually heeded his letter or not, because we don't have any further Easter decrees out of that region until we get to the Synod of Whitby in 664. But he did make the effort. He's like, I want to be one of those popes that they talk about Easter with. And then he decided to take on another controversy, this one more recent and more pressing, which of course is the ongoing debate about monothelitism and the ecthesis. Now in this, he continued Severinus's position, and in 641, he held another synod in Rome to formally and overtly condemn monothelitism and the ecthesis as heresy, just in case that local synod that Severinus has held just before his death got challenged in any way by the potential new emperor. This edict condemning monothelitism was then sent to Emperor Heraclius in Constantinople, and since he'd already relented during the conflict with Pope Severinus, and since he's now very close to death's door at this point, he decides he's going to side with the Pope. And he actually formally repudiated the ecthesis, placing the fault for the whole debacle on the dead Bishop of Constantinople, Sergius. He says, that whole ecthesis thing that you guys are really mad about? I reject it, and it's all that dead guy's fault. This is good for the Pope. And almost immediately after he disavows monothelitism, Emperor Heraclius dies to be succeeded by his sons, Constantine III and Heraclonus. Right now, Constantine III is the senior emperor. And because the Pope wanted to be absolutely clear that all would remain the same now that Heraclius was dead, he wrote to the new emperor, Constantine III. Now, we had talked about this letter briefly at the end of Honorius's episode, because in this letter, this is the one where he apologizes for the vagueness of Pope Honorius's theological position and the confusion that it caused as to the papal position on monothelitism. But he also defended Honorius, arguing that Honorius only ever meant to indicate that there were no contrary wills in Christ, rather than the monothelite concept of a single will. John's making it entirely clear that the papacy does not support monothelitism, but at this point they're not entirely prepared to throw Honorius under the bus. That'll come later. And as a side note, the new emperor Constantine III would only be emperor for about four months before he dies of tuberculosis, and his co-emperor-slash-successor Heraclonus would only be emperor for a couple months after him. And so while all this controversy is going on in the church, the empire has its hand full of a succession crisis. See? Told you. Not well. And that's going to become somewhat important as we carry on with this topic in our next episode. But for now, it's all good for Pope John the Pretty Mast, and his attention is turned to his native home, Dalmatia, which was in some serious trouble. This is a somewhat complicated region that continues to have fairly contested history and understanding, even to this day. 
But just for a very general sort of context, this was a region that was fairly new to Christianization. During the reign of Emperor Heraclius, he had invited the Prince of the Croats, which was one of several ethnic tribes in the area, called Porga, or Porgas, to become ruler of the Dalmatian region, and had provided some assistance to have Catholic priests sent to the region to proselytize and convert and build churches in the area. And since this is where Pope John had been born, we can make somewhat of a reaching assumption that he was likely a part of supporting this ongoing process after Heraclius died. But unfortunately, Dalmatia at this point is also under invasion from other various Slavic tribes who were not Christian. Now, the sources aren't really clear on which invading Slavic tribes these were, but a good guess is the Avars, who have been definitely recorded to have invaded in the area and weren't Christian until the late 8th century. And these are the ones that, if you listen to Totalis Rankium, they refer to the Avars as birds. Birds. They're just birds. Birdmen. And funnily enough, I had wrote in my notes that my guess for this whole thing was the Avars, and then a long while after, like several weeks after, another source popped up on my JSTOR, the San Venanzio Chapel in Rome and the Martyr Shrine Sequence by Gillian Mackey, and she actually cites it as being the Avars. And she says that the Liber Pontificalis confirms that the invading tribes are the Avars. I do not have that in my version of the Liber Pontificalis, but she's the only person saying this is definitely the Avars, so we're going with it. And like with any invasion, the Dalmatian people are suffering, or being killed, or taken captive, and their buildings and their churches are being destroyed. And so John sees this as a problem. So he sends an emissary to Dalmatia, and this is an abbot called Martin. Remember Martin. We will be coming back to Martin in the future. He is the future Pope Martin I. And he sends Martin with huge amounts of wealth to this war-torn region to help ransom captives and assist refugees to safety and to coordinate with the priests in the area to continue converting the invading Slavs wherever possible. But this is a war-torn area, like I said, and the churches of Dalmatia are being destroyed, which is putting all of the relics of Dalmatian saints at risk. And no, I don't mean Ginfor. Ginfor! Not that kind of Dalmatian. This included, like, relics from the bones of bishops Venantius and Dominius, and, and many more. So, Dalmatia had some very important saints, they had some very important relics, and just like we've seen when Rome was under siege, the first places that get totally raided are the catacombs and places of worship, so John wants to get them out of, out of the area. Especially since it was clear that there's not going to be an opportunity to rebuild the churches anytime soon. So Pope John ordered Martin to bring the relics back to Rome with him in order to protect them from harm. And when the relics are brought back to Rome, John had a new oratory founded for them called San Venancio, which is the one I mentioned from the article, which still stands today. 
And this is important because the apse of San Venancio was decorated with a mosaic that depicts Pope John. So we're going to have another mosaic dome to look at in Facium Sanctus. That JSTOR article that I cited before is a full exploration of the church. So any details that anyone wants about this specific building or anything about the Dalmatian saints and martyrs, they can be found in spades there. So I will definitely put that in the show notes. And to wrap up this section on Dalmatia, we will add that this is considered a significant moment in Dalmatian history because the Abbot Martin, who will go on to be the future Pope Martin, was deeply impacted by his experience in Dalmatia. And when he becomes Pope, he will send further assistance to the area to ensure that churches do get rebuilt, which basically preserves any chance of Christianity and the history of the area in surviving there. This is the topic of another paper I read that's called Pope John from Zud and the Mission of Abbot Martin in 641 by Joseph Skunka, which is also very good, but I had to translate the whole thing chunk by chunk from its original Croatian, so I can give you no good quotes. Oh. Yeah. Croatian doesn't Google Translate well. But I tried. <laughs> potatoes. Well, now you have to explain it. You can't just laugh and say potatoes. <laughs> no. I, I'm going to laugh and I'm going to say potatoes. It's my joke. <laughs> Rise amused about potatoes. (laughs) John died on October 12th of 642, and since there really isn't any commentary, we can assume that he died of natural causes. He died already? Yeah, he was not very long-lived. All right. Wendy J. Reardon again cites of him having given a year's stipend to the clergy on his death, and he was buried at St. Peter's, and his tomb was destroyed with no surviving epitaphs that say pretty masked. How rude. Now it's time to rate him. All right, let's try. Let's rate this dick man. He wasn't uh, overall anything, really. No, not really. Big ball and uh, nothing. Well, let's see how he plays out when we score him. Papatum infallium. He officially condemned the ecthesis and monothelitism. And when he did that, the emperor changed his mind about it and agreed with the pope. The emperor was just about to die, but still. That had nothing to do with that. Well, the emperor went me too, which is definitely not what he's been saying this whole time. So that's pretty big. He's so tired, Bree. He is so tired from dying. He also didn't throw Pope Honorius under the bus and maintained his sense of papal authority. So he is not throwing one of our favorite Pope men just completely under that heretic bus. He is still saying, look, this is what he meant. This is how you've taken it. So he's preserving that apostolic succession and authority and infallibility. So he's defending that in his defense of Honorius. His transfer of the relics from the Dalmatian saints and martyrs to Rome probably saved them from destruction. And we unfortunately don't know if the Easter thing actually caused any change, but he certainly tried. So there are some points to be won here. Yeah, I'll give him like a two. A two? Okay, I'm going to give him a five. I'm going to give him two for the condemnation of the ecthesis and monothelitism. 
I'm going to give him two for not throwing Honorius under the bus, and I'm going to give him one for the Dalmatian relics. You're way more excited about his pretty mask than I am. Well, you know, we're going to have some photos. You can judge if you're more excited about his pretty mask. Fructus prohibitum. Nothing at all, except that his nickname is a euphemism for dick. <laughs> now it is. That's our fault. Yes, we could, we could, you know, make ourselves in history and give him a point for it, but no. Seculari impactum. Again, he made the emperor change his position on the ecthesis. The emperor was dying, but it's still significant, so that's a point. And he sent assistance to Dalmatia to ransom hostages and help the suffering and tried to convert the invading Slavic population, which over time will kind of happen. He is doing his best. He is sending someone into a war-torn area to try and make things better. He's a good trier. Give him like a three. I'm going to give him a two. One for the ecthesis, one for Dalmatia. Gives him a five in that category. Fossium Sanctus. All right, so first, the one we rate on. Is this a man, a pretty masked man? Whatever he is, he does not look impressed by whoever else is in the room with him. Especially because his beard has that very long French villain mustache. <laughs> yeah. And he's got quite an arched eyebrow. Mm-hmm. He doesn't look impressed. He does not look impressed, but I am impressed with the eyebrow. I love a good set of eyebrows, and he definitely has that going on. Are you impressed with the non-impressed man? No. I mean, his nose is a interesting shape. It is so aquiline. Yeah, I think this is a like one of the more pronounced noses we've seen in a while. I know he's not like cracked directly across his eyes. It's true. He is not cracked. Is that his pretty man? His nose? Could be. It's very prolonged and pronounced, and we could make it less dirty. We could. Um, I'm going to give him, like, a three. You'll give him a three? I was thinking somewhere in that range, too. So I'll match your three, and that will give him a full score of 1.5, calculated out. Now that we've looked at that, I have two more images for you, and I kind of wish we were rating on this one, and you'll see why right away. He's got a... What the f*** is happening? It's a sticky-outy beard. It's like, um... I know you've never watched Doctor Who, but there's, like, Cthulhu monsters with prehensile face things. Yeah, they're called... I guess, yeah, they've got... They're called Ood. They have little tentacle faces. Um, he's doing a Davy Jones thing here. He is he is doing a Davy Jones. His beard's reaching for something. It is. It's uh it's a long beard and it's sticking out. It is defying gravity. It is a prehensile beard. It's going for something. It's gonna pick up his teacup and drink for him. Oh, uh, that would be the only reason to have a beard. If it could hold my teacup big tough stuff. No, specifically teacups. Just teacups. So like that would a be shelf. the only reason. But no, it has to, like, bring it to my mouth and then put it back down again. You know, it has to be, like, fully prehensile here. That's my only justification for a beard. I would go full Hatshepsut and wear the, like, false beard if it would do that. 100%. So now that we've looked at that one with the prehensile beard, I'm going to send you that mosaic. He is 
the only one without a halo in this because he is, well, we'll get there. It does look like they drew a halo and then erased it. It kind of really does, definitely. Maybe they thought he was gonna be canonized fairly soon. Or maybe, like, the prompt was, like, draw these guys, and then they came back in and were, like, not him. Something like that, yeah. So he he is holding the apps there. So that's his building. He looks pretty much exactly like the mosaic we saw of Honorius. They all look the same at a certain point. Yeah, but, like, it's the exact set. You could, it. I'm pretty sure it even has the same coloring, even though this picture's only black and white. Mm. It's very, Copiers. very similar. Maybe they looked alike. We don't know. One had a way better beard. Well, had a better beard, but do you not remember how jaunty and happy Honorius looked? He was so cheerful. Tempus Pontificus. December 24th, 640 to October 12th, 642. Two years and a score of 0.5. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. Clearly by the erased halo, I'm going to go with no. That is correct. He is not a saint. And that brings us to his total score, which is an impressive, considering we called him a big ball of nothing. He scored a 14. That's way better than 7. And <laughs> what's our lowest? Our lowest? I... Hmm, good question. There is a 7. I see that. We have a 5.375. That is our current lowest. That's Sabinian. All right. Now, I have to ask you, do you think he's papally enough and pizzazzy enough for a papal bull? Well, I'm not going to give it to him unless his beard comes and grabs it from me. Well, unfortunately, it cannot reach. <laughs> that is a no for a papal bull. But we are not quite finished yet, because it's time for a Pope Watch. And yes, this Pope Watch is late. We had such a nice backlog of episodes recorded that we are only doing this now. So on February 12th of 2020, Pope Francis issued his papal exhortation, Querida Amazonia, or Beloved Amazon, in which he declined the proposal to ordain the Vera Parvati, or the married men, in the far-flung reaches of the Amazon. No surprise. Yeah, no surprise, really. This is, like, we talked about this coming out of the Synod of the Amazon back in Hilarious's episode. So, that's episode 48. So this has been considered for quite some time. And we should be clear, because in this document, he doesn't outright reject the proposal. He doesn't say, I say no to this. He says nothing about it at all, which is, in this case, tantamount to rejection. CNN says the document has plenty of poetry, but few, if any, pragmatic changes for the church. It mostly focuses on discussions of environmental impact and calling for support of the people and for the land and culture of the Amazon. Now, as we previously discussed in the whole debacle of the book that's being authored by Cardinal Sarah and maybe Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, who has since asked to have his name removed, none of this is a particular surprise, right? There was not a strong expectation that Francis was going to grant this proposal or the one to ordain women as deacons, which also hasn't happened. 
However, this was by far the most controversial proposal out of the original synod. So there was a vote whether they were going to propose this to the Pope at all. And it was a vote of 41 against, 128 for. And Francis is still not committing to it. Wow. Yeah. This could be a real misstep. Like, it could be too conservative for Pope Francis, who has in general been significantly more liberal than his predecessors. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. Although Bishop Oscar Solis of Utah did say that he was given the distinct impression that Francis was leaving the door open for future decisions. And that's a quote. And there is also some speculation that he intends to have a synod dedicated purely to the discussion of mandatory celibacy. Like, there's one currently being prepared in Germany, so we will see a lot more discussion on this matter soon. But this also shouldn't have anyone expecting major change. Francis is a big fan of celibacy. Francis isn't really into the whole women as deacons thing, and as we see now, he's not into the very probati thing. So, not a surprise, but I think a lot of liberal supporters of Francis were somewhat disappointed by this. So there's that. But, ending on a very, very happy note, we have some thank yous to make. We have so many thank yous to make, so are you ready? Because first, for our Patreon patrons, we have some temporal sins to absolve in Rebecca Botello. Ego te absolvo. We also need to thank Leah Fallon and Podcast Magazine, who focused on us, and did a whole review on our show for the first issue of Podcast Magazine. They chose us. They talked about us. And it was a very, very nice, very flattering review. And, and we really appreciated that. That was a big surprise and a very nice feature. So thank you, Leah, for writing it and Podcast Magazine for publishing it. And finally, two major, major thanks to make because we have had some books arriving from our Amazon wish list, which is so exciting. I am so excited. I was not expecting this at all. So we need to thank W.J. Hayes and Richard Little because you guys totally made my day. I am so excited to read these books. I have The Abacus and the Cross, the story of the Pope who brought light of science to the Dark Ages, which is going to be amazing. And also a book called Papi in Posa, which is 500 years of papal portraiture, which is going to bring so much to Facium Sanctus. Ooh, pictures. It's so cool. I'm not even like done flipping through it because I just keep going, woo -hoo 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 -hoo, and I'm not done with this yet. So lots more coming. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show in that way. That is very cool. Thank you to our patrons. Thank you to all of you for listening. It's been a while since we've recorded, so I feel the need to say thank you. Thank you, thank you. And on that note, we can also say goodbye. Bye.